Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Point Man Podcast. It's your host, John. Man, it has been a very long time since I've been able to record, uh, even since Phil and I have been able to record. And man, it feels good to be back behind the microphone for this episode. Quick update about where we are right now. Uh, we are still in the process of actually building our studio. Right now it is being completed, but still has a little bit to go. Hopefully uh, sometime soon we will be actually able to record in that new studio. And with that will come actual live episodes appearing on YouTube and rebroadcasting. I guess you could would call it on YouTube uh, as well. We will upload videos of our podcasts onto there. So in the meantime, uh, we do have the audio versions uploaded onto YouTube. You guys can go there and slam the subscribe button uh, as well as the subscribe button on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and actually wherever you get your uh, podcasts. In the meantime, this episode is going to be with Kyle Takajan. Kyle is a retired E9. And honestly, I forget what the E9 rank is called in the Coast Guard, but he is a retired E9 from the Coast Guard and a retired Massachusetts Chief of Police. Uh, he offers over 30 years of experience and talks about that in the episode. Uh, in the meantime... <clears throat> what you guys can do to support the episode is go to, actually, I take that back. Recently, I've been out on paternity paternity leave, for those who know, yeah, and what better time than the present while out on paternity leave with the first child to start a business? So, uh, I actually... I launched the Point Man Defensive Solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Spinoff of the podcast. However, um, it's going to be bringing my experience as a medic and as a medic on the SWAT team, uh, as a medic in the Army and medic in the SWAT team, uh, to law enforcement and other first responder agencies as well as the general public. Uh, you guys can go to pointmansolutions.com if you would like to sign up for a class in this area. And if we do not have a class in your immediate area of New England, let us know and we will get one set up. Uh, it's basically going to be the TECC version of TCCC, which is the military version of TCCC, the civilian equivalent because of all the bureaucratic red tape is the tactical emergency casualty care, the TECC. So if you guys would basically like to take your trauma medicine, medicine class, you can go to pointmentdefensivesolutions.com. And shortly, we will be launch, launching podcast merchandise on the website as well. So you guys can stand by for that. In the meantime, go to Pointman Defensive Solutions on Instagram and Facebook. Hit the like button, please. And like I said, if you're interested in taking a class, uh, let us know and we will set one up for you. It's going to be myself and I have a, a few other instructors that I've served with, served with uh, either in the law enforcement realm or first responder realm, uh, a couple of firefighters that are willing to teach with me and the 
uh, military as well, and a few guys that have been deployed overseas and can bring that experience back to you. In the meantime, like I said, this episode is with Kyle. He go he talks about his uh, his numerous years of experience as a police officer and in the Coast Guard and talks about the problems that reservists see uh, basically juggling two careers, one in the military and one uh, in the civilian side. So like I said, guys, go over to the Point Man podcast on Instagram, like us, go to YouTube, Hit the subscribe button there, uh, as well as on Apple iTunes and Spotify. Basically, wherever you get your podcasts, go hit that like button on social media. And if you're interested in doing some sort of first aid trauma class, go to pointmansolutions.com, pointmandefensivesolutions.com. See, it's so new, I've already screwed up the name. <laughs> go to the training area and look and see if there's a class being offered in your area. If there is not, shoot us an email and we will get one set up. And for the podcast, we will be having merchandise on that website as well. All right, guys, here we go. Press the record button real quick and make sure we get that because sometimes sure, make sure it's working. <laughs> not yeah. only that, but uh sometimes the best part of the conversation I found is the first couple minutes and then you forget to press the record button and oh, really? <laughs> you have to go, gotcha. go okay. do that all again. Well, Kyle, thanks for uh joining me here at the uh the show, the makeshift podcast studio, as I was just explaining to you. It's uh my wife actually rented this out for my birthday and because we haven't been able to record at the house because we don't have an area at the moment. It's under under construction right now. But um, Nice. Yeah, we don't have an area at the house right now to record efficiently. And I basically decided, because I've been out on paternity leave, we had our first. And um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> Exciting times. Uh, it's weird how life changes. Very it, much so. <laughs> immediately. Immediately. And people tell you tell you how much life changes and it's – and it, like a, before that, I was like, okay, it does. I know, I get it. But it's literally like as soon as the baby's born, everything is just. I don't. I don't even know how to describe it. But everything just you know changes for you. Um, but I, yeah, like I was saying, I decided no time like the present. Well, I'm out on paternity leave to uh, start my own business, and that's been quite the undertaking so far. And. uh and yeah, it's she rented me out the space, and luckily we were able to record. Yeah, so. it's great. So, what was the impetus for you to start doing this? D- doing the podcast? Yeah. So, <clears throat> I was full time law enforcement in from 2010 to 2012, and I left when I moved from New Hampshire down here uh, full time. I still remain part time up there, so I go back and work roughly 40 hours a month um, just to maintain kind of like my foot in the door sort of thing, and. Keep your certifications up. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you put all that effort into it, as you're well aware. I mean, how many years did you have on? 
31 and a half. Yeah. <laughs> plus or minus. <laughs> yeah. So long it, time. Yeah. It was um, right after I'd always been wanting to, wanting to actually a guy um, from this area out of East Ham had me on his podcast, uh, Steve Gould. I don't know if that name. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So Steve has his own podcast called, uh, um, oh, Christ, he's probably going to kill me for getting, the, for forgetting the name right now. Things Police See is the name of his podcast. And he just basically, you know, talks about war stories, quote unquote, and all that sort of stuff. And he had me on right when I came back from my AIT from the Army for our individual training. So as a medic, I, you know, we go out there for five, six months, however long it is, 16 weeks, but they, break it up with holidays and all that. And uh, he had me on his show to talk about some policing things. And I really, f I fell in love with it. It became really cathartic to me. And after, and so I'd always been wanting to do one. And after the Derek Chauvin, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, I thought to myself, I saw law enforcement in such a negative context. And I was looking at the video of when he did that to George Floyd. I looked at it and I was like, well, I saw a man who probably had seen a lot of things in his lifetime and especially on the job. And who knows if he had gone to like for mental health, mental health help or mental health therapy or, and I have gone through my own uh, battles with that. And, and I've gone to see a counselor, uh, numerous times and it's something I'm open and honest with, uh, about and that my, what really wanted me to uh, start the podcast was to, uh, kind of break down the stigma for law enforcement and police officers, not only, um, not only first responders, but everybody in general, because when I started in 2010, there was still a stigma when it came to it. <laughs> yeah. You there know, still is, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, Everybody thought that, you know, if you go out to see a counselor, well, number one, we're going to take your badge and your gun and, you know, you can't work the street because you're, you're out of your mind. Like, and that's not how, that's probably how it was. That's kind of how it was portrayed back when I started at least. Um, and, and that's not how it should be. And I, my impetus for starting this was to kind of break down this, break down that barrier, the stigma of mental health and, you know, people who go to seek that sort of counseling, they're, they're stronger, in my opinion, for doing that. You know, we have guys that'll bottle up and, and deal with it their own way. But <clears throat> so that was kind of, I guess, kind of the, uh, the long and short of it of why I wanted to. But yeah, enough about me real quick. So here you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here I am. It's a, it's a battle. It's, it's it, quite time consuming when you're doing it all on your own. Um, I had a like co-host kind of one of my best friends was uh co-hosting with me for a while but you know he still lives up in northern new hampshire and so it's kind of it's been kind of hard um not only to get together but then to well we didn't really have an area at the house to do this so but uh but yeah enough about me how's things going with you well great i mean i'm retired i although i'm not very good at it i i retired <laughs> twice thus far and i'm still working uh i I'm not one to sit home, and I've never been one to sit home on a couch with a clicker. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my lifestyle. That's the worst, uh, I think. And I kind of have to have a purpose when I get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I enjoy what I do. Of course, it, it 
it's no longer in public service, has nothing to do with it. Uh, You're flying in, now, in right? In one regard. I am. So, um, and I've had an interest in aviation since I was literally a knee-high to a grasshopper. My parents used to bring me up to a airport close by to where we lived, and I was one of those little tiny kids with his fingers through the fence, you know, <laughs> looking at airplanes. Um, and interestingly, we've got a, a family photograph of us at a particular airport with a couple of neighborhood kids, and we're looking at airplanes in the background, and there's a, actually a C-130 out on the ramp. And, um, you know, little did I know that, you know, much later on in life, I, I would have a, a most much closer connection to the uh, military aviation because I do some volunteering. And I have for the last few years. Um, volunteering for who? And I'm with an organization uh, called the, uh, the Delaware Aviation Museum Foundation. They're based in Georgetown, Delaware. Okay. And they maintain a series of aircraft. Um, and uh, display them around primarily on the northeast. Uh, oh, okay. The farthest that they go is out to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, but so, uh, it's mostly eastern seaboard from New York down to Florida. Is it vintage uh, aircraft? They're vintage uh, military aircraft. Okay. Uh, one of them is, uh, which is their primary aircraft that they display, is a uh, B-25 Mitchell bomber. Is that what was just and involved in mid-air collision? Nope. Uh, these airplanes, uh, they're historically known uh, for having uh, done the Doolittle Raid okay. uh, in April of 1942 from yep. the USS Hornet. And the aircraft that we fly um, is a B-25J, and uh, it was produced in 1944 and uh, served you know, with the Army Air Corps and then eventually went to uh, civilian hands um, and about uh, 20... Six twenty-seven years ago, the current owner uh, purchased the aircraft uh, and completed its refurbishment in uh, its military configuration, and so it's displayed at air shows and uh, events uh, over the last thirty or twenty-five or so years. And, That's awesome. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic tribute to the men and women who not only supported and built those aircraft, but then crewed and flew them. Yeah. Um, in a in a very very difficult time facing the United States. Yeah, I went out to Clinton a couple of years ago, Clinton, Massachusetts, and I believe that's where the Collins Collins Foundation. Oh yes, they're up in Stowe. Stowe, yes, yep, okay, in Stowe. And here I am. I'm six foot four, and I'm climbing around the bombers. That you know, this is more than a couple of years ago. This is probably I don't know, twelve, fourteen years ago. A couple of years ago in my mind right now, but uh, I'm climbing here. I'm six foot four climbing around those bombers. And I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, like the guys that were inside the turrets at those, at the point in time and, you know, how just cramped and tight quartered it was. But no, that's awesome. I didn't realize you did that as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the best part about doing that is being able to share the history. Um, and I'm always inspired by the young people that come out to these shows. And, and some of these kids, uh, both boys and girls, um, you know, ages anywhere from uh, when they start to get a real handle on things, uh, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old. And the amount of information that they know about these aircraft sometimes is just incredible, more so than adults. <laughs> in many cases, um, and they are so excited uh, to see them, to touch them, and to hear them. 
the aircraft that we have, it's uh, on what's called a, uh, a living history flight exemption. Okay. And that is where we are uh, permitted by the FAA to take passengers uh, for rides in the airplane. They pay a fee. Um, and that helps to support the airplane because the costs of the maintenance. So I can only imagine. Uh, the insurance, uh, the fuel, oil, uh, the parts is phenomenally expensive. And it's an all-volunteer crew that not only uh, maintains the airplane, but flies it as well. Um, so that's what helps us to support and be able to take the airplane around uh, the country and put it on display. But when you see these young folks have such a history, uh, a basis of knowledge in the history of the airplane, what it did, what it stands for, and what it represents, uh, gives you a lot of hope. Yeah. You know, for the future. <laughs> um, and it's also interesting because uh, America as a nation is um, – uh, we're hurting for engineers in our country. Yes. And we have been for a long time when we're falling way, way behind other nations um, in our manufacturing ability and our technical knowledge. And so when you see young people come out to these air shows and everything that we do supports STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics – and uh, it's just a real nice gateway for them. So it touches a lot of bases, you know, when uh, when we bring them out and we talk with people and they get to actually see the airplane, see how the how it works. And then, of course, there's the veterans side of the whole thing <laughs> and their families. Um, many times. Uh, Are we talking we'll, World War II veterans? Yes, World War II and Korean era veterans, as well as veterans from, you know, many other uh, areas of time, mm -hmm. but specifically uh, of the time frame that this aircraft uh, served. And sometimes you'll see families come out, John, and uh, they'll they'll ask, for instance, uh, where did my grandfather sit in the plane or what was his job, you know, things like that. And uh, we, we get to share that with them. It's just wonderful. And then from time to time, we're fortunate enough to get a veteran to come out and see uh, – see the aircraft uh, that may have either been one of the maintainers on it or uh, part of the air crew, perhaps. Um, and they get to touch it and you can, you can see them go back in time. And uh, what's really extraordinary, and uh, I haven't experienced it yet with this aircraft, but to be able to take them flying uh, and put them back in the aircraft uh, it is just, uh, you know, a phenomenal thing to be able to do. Yeah. And in many times, that opens up for them the ability to tell stories to their families, which they may or may not have told in the past. Yeah, because it's it's one of those, I forget the actual like psychological term behind it, but you know, you start actually putting somebody in that aircraft again, and it just it brushes off and dusts off those old memories for people to, like you said, just talk about what it's they memories, did. It's memories, it's emotions, yeah. you know. Um, they talk about the friendships and what they've been through, uh, and it's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, you wish more people uh, had the ability to hear that. Yeah. Uh, not just for the history, but to realize what these veterans have gone through in their lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. There's a... Out in the Stowe area, there's a um, a World War II privately owned museum, and I went out there with my grandfather back in 2008 timeframe, and he was not a World War II veteran, but he was a Korea veteran, and it's it was 
bringing back old memories of people that he knew that were a couple of years older than him that went to war back in World War II. And it's, and like you said, it, 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 it's emotional. It's, it's just interesting to hear the stories that people have and they may not have remembered them if they hadn't been involved, uh, like in that aircraft or out in the museum and, and have seen those sorts of things. How long have you been with, uh, that foundation for? So it's been, uh, a uh, little over two years. Okay. Um, and I hope to be able to spend more time with them. It's a little, for me, it's a little bit of a distance thing because yeah. <laughs> they're in Georgetown, Delaware. And uh, um, for me, I have to either get there uh, and then go on the trip with them or get to the location of where the where the event is. Have you had the chance of flying yet? I have. And actually, uh, a year ago, this past October, I got uh, what they call type rated, which is a, um, a license to actually fly the aircraft uh, as a co-pilot. Okay. And uh, when we move the airplane between locations, then uh, the co-pilots can fly uh, to develop our, our time and experience in right. the airplanes. When they do the air shows... Um, or do the living history flights, they have to have two pilot and commands up front okay, uh, in both left and right seat. And that way they have the most experience they can possibly have on the flight deck. Where are they putting the passengers when they have that? Um, so we have uh, three passengers in front okay, um, in three seats and then three in the uh, aft compartment behind the bomb bay. So. Okay. And they all have spectacular views oh, no matter imagine. where they're sitting. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of equal no matter where they're <laughs> sitting, and the flights last about twenty two minutes. Okay, it's thirty minutes total. You know, chocks off to chocks on, uh, take off to touchdown, essentially. But um, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience for those folks. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. Have you seen what happened, unfortunately, in, in Dallas? Um, I I'm aware of it. I chose not to watch the videos. Yeah, understandable. Uh, just um, you know, I. I just don't need to see that. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, I don't know if your pilot experience would be able to give any sort of clue as to what might have happened. Well, mine would be just as uh, much of a guess as the next person's, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, what we help, what we hope for, rather, within the the Warbird community is after the NTSB uh, gets a chance to diagnose what occurred, um, that the rest of us can learn from it. Um, but that takes a while. Yeah. You know, you're talking a, a year or two out at least before they're really able to nail down what occurred and then make their findings public. Yeah. Yep. And so I just uh, uh, don't want to speculate, you know, Understandable. now and then. Understandable. So I know people are probably wondering who the hell you are. So if I don't oh, know if you yeah. want to introduce yourself. Sure. So um, my name is Kyle Takajan. And uh, thank you, John, for, for having me on no, your I podcast. I appreciate you coming out. You know, uh, I know we've been trying to do this for about a year or so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, finally getting to it now. Yeah. But um, uh, I live on Cape Cod. I live in Chatham, actually. And uh, I grew up uh, on the Hudson River in New York. Okay. And uh, both of my parents, even before my brother and I were born, used to vacation up on Cape Cod. So whatever they could uh, afford, I guess, uh, you know, or a week or so, maybe a little bit more, each summer we would come up and vacation in Brewster right on uh, right on Cape Cod Bay. So that's how we kind of got to know uh, Cape Cod. And then uh, my brother's last duty station uh, in the Coast Guard was uh, Station Provincetown. Okay. And that was right when they moved 
the station from out at Race Point into town to the brand new station on Commercial <laughs> Street. And uh, I used to go up and visit him. I was out of high school by then and uh, would go up and visit him whenever I could and kind of got to know the lower Cape that way. And um, one day he and I were talking on the phone. I was back uh, in New York working and uh, I was trained as a welder and uh, was working in that field at the time. And he said, hey, uh, you know, maybe uh, you ought to come up to Cape Cod. And we could start some kind of a business together up here. You know, maybe uh, welding or, or diving or, or doing boat work, that kind of thing. And I said to him, I said, well, Eric, I, that sounds like a great idea, but I don't really know a whole lot about real boats because on the Hudson we had small runabouts <laughs> and John boats and, you know, skiffs, things yeah. like that. He said, well, that's easy. Just join the Coast Guard. They'll teach you everything you need to know and then come on up. <laughs> so, uh, true story. Was he recruited uh, too? <laughs> I, I, I hung the phone up with him, and 18 days later, I was on a bus going to boot camp. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 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 And that was the uh, the winter of 1983-84. Did you have any idea, of, other than obviously your brother was in, but did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into? Uh, not particularly, <laughs> no. Uh, other than, you know... Watching him over the years before that, uh, you know, in his Coast Guard career. Uh, what did he do? So, uh, my brother was a bosun mate. So, he was a, a boat driver, essentially. Okay. And, and most of his work was on uh, at small boat rescue stations. He served on ships as well, but most of it was on sh- uh, ship small rescue stations. And he was a boat driver, a coxswain, as it's called. Okay. Um, so, I... Uh, I graduated boot camp, and then I went right to uh, machinery technician school, which is uh, basically a marine engineer. So you're uh, a marine mechanic, and uh, you work on all of the the ships or the boats, mechanical systems, not the electronics or the electrical, but mechanics, engines, hydraulics, and things like that. So after school, uh, my first duty station was at Station Chatham. Uh, because my brother was on the Cape, so it seemed like the perfectly logical place to come. And were you, did you enlist full-time or in the reserves? So I enlisted in the reserves. Okay. Um, and uh, Chatham was my first duty station. And so as a young Coast Guardsman there, I learned, uh, you know, the things that you learned initially about how to be a good service member mm-hmm. and uh, to work on your qualifications and, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. And um, How was boot camp for you? Uh I didn't mean seem to mind it so much. Um, you know, I, for the most part, did what my parents told me to do. So when I got to boot camp and there was a guy yelling at me, telling me what to do, I did what he told me yeah. to do. And how um, old were you when you enlisted? So I was 20, let me see, it was 84. So I was 22. Okay, so you had a little bit of life experience. A little bit, you. Yeah. yeah. I had been out of school for a few years and so yeah. forth. So uh, How was that, dealing with the younger people? Uh Honestly, don't remember any differences. We were all yeah. in the same boat, you know, had yeah. to do all of the same stuff and whatnot. So, um, you know, we all got through it together. When it uh, was when I enlisted, I enlisted at 29 and I turned 30 in boot camp in the Army. And uh, thank God they never found out it was my 30th birthday because I was there. And a couple of the guys kept it uh, tight when they, when they knew that it was my birthday. So, um, I actually got elected, quote unquote, voluntold to be the... We call it a platoon guy, the PG, though, who's in charge of the 60 people that's in his platoon at that point in time. Guy, 29 years old, turned 30. So I had a little bit of life experience and I can probably, if I was in the drill and drill sergeant's, uh, shoes for myself, it was, I could see why they chose the, the older person. They probably didn't want to put up with the younger people's 
immaturity at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you went through and became a machinist mate? It was a, yeah, it's a, a machinery technician machinery is the tech. actually the actual rating. Uh, so then I, you know, I worked in Chatham doing that for, uh, you know, a number of years. And then the opportunity came up to, uh, to spend some time on one of the cutters down in Woods Hole. Okay. And I jumped on that. And uh, I, I think uh, it was a wonderful opportunity because it really broadened my horizons in terms of uh, the missions of the Coast Guard and uh, also learning my trade. Because um, when you go with a ship to the shipyards um, and see it out of the water and get involved with all of the work that's done uh, to upgrade the engineering systems and maintain the ship, that's something that I wouldn't have gotten so much at a small boat station. So, yeah. uh, and on that particular boat, which was the Cutter Monomoy, uh, which now actually is serving in Iraq. Oh, really? Uh, along with uh, a number of other Coast Guard vessels that have been there um, since the uh, the Iraq War. Um, on that particular cutter, I have been from Grenada to uh, Canada. Wow. Uh, on the eastern seaboard and, uh, wow. you know, at different periods of time. So uh, that was really a neat experience, too. And part of that was um, when we would do migrant operations out of uh, Puerto Rico. We were we would be stationed in uh, Mayaguez, which is on the western side of Puerto Rico. And then um, as the as the migrants were trying to escape the Dominican Republic. And when I say escape. It was really tragic to see because, you know, families, uh, we would come across boats that uh, seriously overloaded and they would have from infants to grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And these people would essentially pay their entire life savings just to get a spot to try and get to Puerto Rico. Because once they got to Puerto Rico, if they were there for over six months, they could get a driver's license and then they could get to the United States and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but what happened was, is we would find them at sea and then take them aboard. Uh, we weren't uh, able to take them uh, below or inside of the ship. So they essentially lived um, under big tents on the fantail. But, uh, you know, the children would get immunizations from the corpsmen. First time in their lives for most of them that they were ever uh, given immunizations for anything. Um, and, of course, fed and so forth. But we would transfer them back to a Dominican Coast Guard vessel okay. at sea, um, do the transfer, and then they would bring them back to the Dominican Republic. But when they stepped ashore, they were going back to nothing. Yeah. And these scoundrels, keep it polite, that took their money to put them on this boat and send them that way, in many cases, they didn't even have enough fuel to get to Puerto Rico. Wow. And the people who were arranging all this stuff knew it. They didn't care. Yeah, they just want to take the money and so run. it was, you know, it was tragic. So it it um, it gives you uh, a an additional perspective on immigration because you see how how uh, badly people want to come to the United States mm -hmm. for what this country offers. Um, I still wholeheartedly believe in immigrating people into the United States um, the proper way, right? Um, you know, as uh, as our our grandparents did and. And so forth um, versus coming through illegally, but that's just my particular opinion. Yeah, and without um, going down the whole political rabbit hole, I I I completely agree. As long as you're coming here the legal right way, I don't think that there's an issue. That's what America was founded on. That's why we're a melting pot, and that's 
what we believe in. Yes, and uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Exactly. You know, exactly. Uh, We're all immigrants. Yeah, but it does uh, it does give you a a really eye opening perspective as the plight for people that are uh, working and living in these impoverished nations, and you know you can certainly understand why they want to come. Yeah, yeah. Did you on board? So that's like the law enforcement sort of role that you guys took upon when you were out there. Because I know I from what I understand of the Coast Guard, which is Keep, keep in mind, it's not that deep. Um, basically, all Coast Guard does, or does serve a law enforcement purpose in to protect, like, for immig- uh, immigration and drug smuggling and all that sort of it, stuff. It is one of the mission <laughs> sets, certainly, of the Coast Guard. And in that, in that particular realm, those ships were uh, sent uh, down south to do that particular mission for... There was a six-week period of uh, being uh, on station, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and then they would come home, and then uh, they wouldn't go back for another 18 months. They'd rotate other ships and throw, you know. Um, And then uh, I I finished my time on board uh, Monomoy, and I went on active duty uh, uh, 2003, 2004, uh, and to the summer of 2005. And I served uh, at the Coast Guard Academy. I had a tremendous assignment down there. Um, of course, uh, the Coast Guard Academy, whether it's uh, through the Academy itself or through uh, Officer Candidate School, which is co-located in New London, that is our officer accession point for okay. the Coast Guard. Um, and they started a brand new program for the Coast Guard. It was in place in the other service academies, but it was new to the Coast Guard Academy to assign senior enlisted members to the companies of cadets. Um, so there are eight companies uh, plus officer candidate school. So uh, each one of those companies was assigned uh, one senior enlisted member. So at the time I was a senior chief. Um, so I went on active duty to do that job for that period of time. And we, uh, we started the program, which was amazing. Um, and the idea was was to get these future officers uh, accustomed to the relationship and working with uh, senior enlisted leaders within the service. Uh, so the first six months of being in that job, the, those of us that were selected to do it, uh, we visited uh, Air Force Academy, uh, West Point, and uh, the Naval Academy to see how their programs worked and essentially take the best ideas from right. those uh, different places um, to help mold the, the program at Coast Guard Academy. Uh, so it was a, just a tremendous opportunity and opened many doors for me yeah. uh, professionally and personally uh, as well. It was a very gratifying role. It was a, uh, a busy, busy job. You had 125 young, bright, spirited, smart uh, cadets who wanted to serve their country. Um, and there was only one of you. So at some point, <laughs> you had to sleep somewhere, you, yeah. you know, and spend time with your family. Uh, but And they all wanted you to do and participate and be at their thing, whatever that was. Yep. So it was hard to split yourself up. But, uh, you know, they're, they're really bright young people. And the greatest thing now is to see them uh, – uh, Many of them as as mid grade and starting to become uh, more senior officers in the service that that stayed and see uh, their successes and their families and you know it's just really really neat so you get to see uh, see that as it as it goes along and and um, 
it's nice to see the service grow and to know that you had, you know, a, a tiny, tiny, minute <laughs> part of, of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, like you said, some of those people have gone on to do big things with their career and they're starting to get into that senior leader. I mean, like in, in the officer route. So like the 04, 05, 06 range and, you know, if you've had an impact on them, they, they are going to look back and, you know, think about that impact when making different decisions. And, and you, know. Uh, you know, and some of them remember you, you know, yeah. and remember you very well, um, which, which is, you know, always nice. And then, of course, there are others that, uh, you know, just like our, our, uh, our enlisted folks that uh, do, a, you know, one enlistment, they do uh, four, they, four years, they give us four good years of their time. And uh, they should be infinitely proud of all of the work that they did. Oh, and definitely. then they go off to be, uh, you know, successful civilians in whatever, you know, phase or, or aspects of life they uh, they choose to follow. And the same thing in the officer corps. You know, they may do their five years and then uh, go on to be a successful civilian doing whatever it is that they love to do. Yeah. How long is or how long was the officer school while you were there for them? So uh, the Coast Guard Academy is a four-year uh, academy just like Annapolis okay. or uh, – or West Point, and uh, they have a five-year commitment. Okay, uh, so a- after that, so it was like incoming freshmen, for sake of argument. I don't know, if, and then I wasn't sure if it was like an OCS sort of sixteen-week school. Or so six there's months. OCS as well, which okay. I think is about eighteen weeks. Okay, or so okay, um, which is a mix of both civilian and enlisted members. Yeah, who are selected for officer candidate school. Gotcha. Um, and then, um, so I did that job, and I came back off active duty. And then I taught for a while at uh, Boat Forces Command Cadre School, which is a school where our senior enlisted members who are going to be in charge at small boat stations go to this school for a few weeks. Um, and there was a, a segment in there to uh, give a block of instruction about reserve members because at many of the small boat stations around the country, they have a reservist assigned to them. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching a block of instruction there to help uh, the incoming, not only a commanding uh, uh, officers in charge, but then also the uh, executive officers in charge, you know, how to uh, lead and manage their their reserve members. At being a reservist myself, the, the biggest hurdle or biggest challenge I've seen when it comes to being in the military and trying to maintain a civilian career is it's not just the one weekend a month, two weeks a year that that you get told when you sign up. It's a lot of three, four day drills. And then I, I've had upwards. I think my longest yearly training was 29 days. And that was, that was definitely, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to maintain that career and then being you know, the civilian career, in my case, law enforcement, and then being a reservist as well. How did you help your leaders get through like that sort of challenge? Well, in, uh, in, in my case, in the beginning, it was very challenging, very, very challenging. Um, uh, you know, it'll go either one of two ways. Either uh, the people that you work for um, really value uh, the military and uh, reservists and understand what they do, or they don't. Um, and honestly, it's incumbent upon a reservist to uh, help to educate the people that they work for, okay, uh, in terms of what the uh, what the requirements are, and to to work that in as best they can. Um, I really struggled with it in the beginning of my police career. 
which started in uh, 1986, a couple of years after I was already in the military. Uh, and as, uh, as time went on, you know, it, it did get a little bit better. Um, and then in the very end of my police career, when I was a police chief for the six years, I had, um, you know, two people that were uh, reservists, um, both in the Army, uh, in the Guard. Um, so, you know, fortunately, I knew what the commitments could be. I knew what the short term, you know, coming on orders was, you yeah. know, all about and that kind of thing and what the <clears throat> what the time requirements were for school. Um, because I think what a lot of employers don't necessarily understand is, for instance, if you're a full time police officer, what I would say to them, uh, some of my colleagues was, OK, take everything that you do as a full time police officer. And then add another job onto what you do as a full-time police person. And that job has just as many requirements for training, for certifications, for competencies, all of those things. And add it onto what you do as a police officer. And then you can start to understand what the commitment is like from someone who chooses to wear two uniforms. Uh, it's it's difficult. Um, not only is it difficult on an employer's and on the individual, but it's also difficult on families. Oh, without a doubt. Because it means a lot of time away from home. Yeah. And in, I can only put it in my perspective now. I mean, both of us are in law enforcement. Both of us are in the military and with a young one at home. And now, like, because... Obviously, I'm out on leave. She's out on leave for a few more months. Getting back into it, she's had to change her civilian job schedule based off of my civilian job schedule. And then now, you know, there's always talk about going any, going somewhere. So if there, if we do go somewhere for the for the army, it's okay now. They actually need that family care plan that they talk about for us. Yeah, <laughs> you have to have that established because. How are you going to take care of your child and and while you're gone? I mean, then your wife's schedule is going to change again because you're gone and daycare and all that sort of stuff. And it is – it's very time-consuming. Yeah. And th- what I've seen is <clears throat> there's no more – there's no difference in active duty compared to the reserve with regards to requirements. I mean, maintaining, like you said, your competencies, your skills – you know, we have a lot of guys in men and women. Uh, I say that you know, gender neutral, essentially. Um, people in our unit who are medics and then in the military, and then don't do that on the outside. They're plumbers. They're you know, uh, they work in IT. You know, so they they don't have that sort of skill set, and or on the civilian side, and they have to take time out of their day while they're home with their families to you know, do refreshing, do continuing education. And it's, it's just, I wish the reserves or the military in general would see that time commitment and cut back just a little bit. I mean, you obviously may have to maintain your competency, but it just seems to me that there's, that there's just a lot more stress sometimes than they're, they're, Needs to be. And I obviously don't know what I don't know when it comes to that. Um, I know that there's things above and beyond my E5 pay grade. So, <laughs> um, that have to be done. But 
yeah, I guess that's just my my continuing gripe when it comes <laughs> when it comes to the military. But uh, so uh, with all that going on in your career, you had the wanting to become a police officer. Where'd you Where'd you get that? So um, you know, I was living in uh, at the time I was living in Provincetown. Okay, um, and I uh, had a, my brother and I had started a business. Uh, it was a welding and a diving business, and um, we were doing just fine, but working hard, you know, trying to – a couple of young guys trying to keep a business going. Yeah. And um, uh, I had a couple of friends in Provincetown who um, who suggested that I uh, I join the police department. And I said, I, yeah, I don't have any time for that. I, I, <laughs> I've got a business I'm trying to run. I'm in the Coast Guard Reserve. I, you know, I just can't can't even think about it. So uh, one thing led to another, and they kept pestering me and, and – uh, and at the time, the part-time police officers were called auxiliary police officers. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, you know, your, your father-in-law, Lee, uh, was a uh, auxiliary yep. officer in, in Provincetown. And I was as well before him. Yeah. Uh, so He basically has described his, the start of his career in kind of the same way, like – the local cops coming down to where he was working and throwing the application in his truck at the point in time, you know, and he's like, I don't want to do that. And yeah. then, you know, one thing leads to another <laughs> yeah. and then here you are. Right? Yeah. Uh, so that, that was 1986. And then, um, in 1988, a full-time opening came up in, uh, in Truro and I decided to apply, you know, and I was fortunate enough to get selected. And then, um, Went to the police academy that year, which is much shorter than what it is today. What was it back then? 16 weeks. Okay. So and, New Hampshire, uh, it's just turned to that. Yeah. So now it's 20, uh, I think it's 22 or 23 weeks here okay. in Massachusetts. Uh, and started my career, you know, in Truro. Uh, and, at, you know, at the same time, then shortly after that, I uh, uh, was married. And then, you know, our first child came along a couple of years <laughs> after that. And, you know, then, then life got complicated. And, uh, and, I, and I think back on it today, John, and it, it was insane. So, I mean, I had a full-time police career, um, you know, a reserve career that was, you know, uh, ramping up and, and moving along rapidly. I had uh, one son and then a second son. And then I had a welding business that was still going. <laughs> You know, um, and, you know, just being brutally honest about it, um, uh, looking back, I wish I had spent more time with my family and, and doing less time of that stuff. I say that uh, in in one sense, and I am also at this point in my life extremely grateful that I, I continued my military service uh, to the point where I was able to retire. Yeah. Um, with uh, 30, roughly 30 years of service in the Coast Guard um, because I, um, it gives, gives me a lot of life flexibility now mm -hmm. and takes care of me. But, um, you know, there's a price to pay uh, yeah. for that. And um, it, it all, you know, each one of us has individual situations, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily get, uh, Get the time back. Well, I shouldn't say you don't necessarily. You don't get time back, right? Mm -hmm. Time in the rear of your mirror is time gone <laughs> by. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I'm fortunate, I'm, you know, very close to both of my boys. Uh, you know, we love each other dearly. And and uh, one is out in San Diego, who I miss uh, like crazy because I don't get to see him. Um, and the other's here on Cape Cod. Uh, at, you know, they're both grown men working and so forth. Um, but, uh, 
you know, that, and then I, for some crazy reason, I started going to college when I was <laughs> in about 30, uh, 38 years old or something like that. 38, just got 30, the, just 39. got the. Well, the I knew that if I was going to go anywhere further in the police department, I needed to have an education, uh, you know, a college education. Yeah. So I remember, you know, coming home from work, I'd work day shift, come home. Uh, do stuff with the family, stuff with the boys, whether it was sports practices or whatever it was. And then after that, um, I'd get on the computer and do my Coast Guard business, whatever that was required. And then I'd start my homework at 10 o'clock at night from college. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> Just nutty. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. So, you know, and that went on for, it was four or five years until I graduated. So I'm a Roger Williams alum, but uh, but that helped me. It it gave me this, the uh, the piece of paper in your pocket that you needed for advancement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would not have, I would not have advanced to a, a, a police chief without it. Yeah, I, when I started applying it in 2009, 2010 to police departments, it was one of those unwritten requirements. I think there were a lot of guys that were getting out of the military, and if, um. You know, if you could, oh, you're fine. It's, I've, I've hit it numerous times. Um, so there are a lot of guys getting out of the military and, you know, if you could show that you were doing something from 18 years old to 21, 22 years old after, you know, between, uh, graduating high school and, and being able to become a police officer, um, that was good. But I think there was a lot more back when I started. It was almost like an unwritten requirement to show some sort of, advanced education um and i think now uh, from the people i've spoken to and keep in mind my my foot is half in the door when it comes to policing i uh i still maintain my certs like we were talking about but <clears throat> i hope it's not going the opposite way with because i i mean when i took the test there was 160 other people and i know when They've had recent hirings. There have been maybe five, six, seven people who have showed up to, to try to become a police officer. And I just hope that the political climate and whatnot hasn't pushed that sort of emphasis on a higher education uh, for any first responder, really. Um, I just hope it hasn't pushed it down the opposite direction where it had been going. So I think it it is needed, and it's not... Um, it's like, I think it's much more than just a piece of the, a piece of paper in your pocket. Like I know you, I, I know you were saying it's the ability to, to, how do I say this? To show how, how you, different people learn different ways. Um, studying different techniques of policing throughout. I'm not sure. Is that what you're? Degree it was in, yeah. Yeah, it's in CJ. Yeah, so um, learning how policing started in America, why there's community policing, how to do community policing. I know that was my favorite class when I got my CJ degree from Westfield. And <clears throat> it just it just goes to show or it just gives you the ideas of how policing is done in different areas of the world and whatnot. And I think that there just needs to be a, a continued emphasis on higher education maybe the the formal kind maybe some sort of other certificate program but you know as long as people can show that uh 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, really what uh, the emphasis is today. It's funny. I, uh, this past July, it's been five years since I retired from the police department, and ten years since I retired from the Coast Guard, which just uh, <laughs> surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it to you that way. It surprises yeah. me every time I, uh, for, for whatever reason, the numbers rise to the surface. You know, I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. But uh, time is certainly marching on. And, you know, like everything else, uh, it's cyclic. And the um, the job changes and the job requirements change, too. Yeah. As, uh, as uh, political trends change and as things evolve, um, when, you know, when I was hired, it, and I kid you not, it was a single page, the application. <laughs> <laughs> when I retired as a chief, our application was 27 pages yeah, long. Yeah, it's um, not and, fun. And the, the background investigation that was conducted on each applicant was uh, thorough, very thorough, mm-hmm. and took time. Um, and, you know, going back to something that you t- alluded to a little bit at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, we spend uh, a, uh, a tremendous amount of time and energy looking for the best candidate that we can possibly get through the door. Mm-hmm. And then we spend the next 20 to 30 years beating that person up throughout the course of their career uh, to the point that when, when they are done, um, in my estimation, they are not as whole as they were when they started. Now, I honestly think, John, that we are getting better at yeah. it, that we are paying more attention to the mental aspects of public service for the public service employees than we ever did years ago. Well, we never paid any attention to it, you know, years past. But now, at least we have the uh, the realization that uh, mental health of public safety officers, whether they're police, fire, EMS, doesn't matter, military, um, is really, really important. The amount to which uh, an individual department cares about that or addresses it is certainly different. And I think what we struggled with um, as agency uh, leaders was uh, getting our our criminal justice training councils uh, throughout the nation to understand it and be willing to fund um, the training that was needed, not just one and done, but throughout the course of the officer's career. And um, and if and if we have a couple more moments, I'll just I'll go through a couple of yeah. Gates. We, got as, we have as much time as we have. Okay, uh, <laughs> I'll go through a couple of gates with you. Um, and I used to describe this to people that uh, were in positions of authority that that would make decisions on things that that might affect how uh, how we could bring resources to police officers. And that is, uh, you know, when you when you first come into the career, you're young. Um, and you're, you're young, uh, full of piss and vinegar, and bright-eyed, right? Um, but you go through a number of gates as you go through your career. And, 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 and it, to me, it sort of goes like this. So you, in many cases, police officers get hired full-time, and it's their first really substantive job. That was mine. Right? Yeah. It has uh, good pay. Yep. It has good benefits, you know, and, and steady work. So now uh, they're on board. 
they're they're making some money and uh maybe they they make their first purchase in many cases it's a vehicle right <laughs> it's a it's a new vehicle yeah um and uh and and then they um they get their first taste of real debt because now they have a note on that on that vehicle so you go a little bit farther on what happens next and many times it's a a girl or a boyfriend becomes serious there's a marriage right um and then what's the next thing that many times happens it's the purchase of a home or a home yeah right yeah it can be a purchase of a home so now um you've added another layer of complexity to the life cycles here um there's more debt and then as you mentioned sometimes you know kids come into the picture so um as life goes on for these young folks it gets more complicated and it gets busier and it gets more stressful because each one of these layers even though they're happy events they add stressors of things that have to be have to be dealt with and have to be taken care of um and all the while, they're working different shifts, they're working extra hours, and they're working, uh, you know, in, in New England's cases, these details to help to pay for all of this. Yep. So this is, um, it's taking up energy, uh, building in mental stress. All of these things are happening, but, uh, and it's a rhetorical question, but what are we doing along the way to prepare officers for that? And the other thing is, is as they get mid-grade into their careers, the other thing is you, you reach a peak and then you start to fall down. If your career is 30 years, it peaks at 15 and then you're on the backside, right, mm-hmm. for the next 15. And I don't necessarily mean it in what you're producing or whatever. I'm just talking a timeline, yeah. simply a timeline. And at the end of that, you have a retirement that more than likely you're going to be eligible for. And let's say you're, you're lucky enough to reach that retirement age 55, 60 years old. Well, we're living longer. So if you retire at, say, 60, and you are, let's just throw out a number. You're making $50,000 a year in your retirement. Mm-hmm. In 20 years... Or twenty-two years, that fifty thousand dollars is going to buy what twenty-five thousand dollars would buy when you retired. Yep. Yeah. So, what we're not doing is two things. One is preparing our police officers for the stressors of these mental gates and these 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 life events as they go along. And number two, we're not preparing them properly for the financial and the medical aspects that they're going to face later on in their lives. Much of it caused by doing the work. Right. Um, I think it's a whole package. Yeah. uh, These are things that is a profession we really need to pay attention to. I can't agree more. I think that Administrators and administrations throughout the, the country need to look at their officers as an investment. I, th- in part, they do because when you, if you're in a police officer and you're going to another agency, and sometimes the agency that you're leaving will say that we've invested X number of dollars into you, and you know 
uh, how are you going to pay this back? If there's a new town or a city going to pay that back? <clears throat> and I'm not really meaning the financial aspect, but you want your employees to be not only happy when they go to work, but you want them to be ha- happy while they're off work as well. And you need, it's, I think it's incumbent upon the administrators to take care of their employees. So the point of, <clears throat> you know, are they, I had a, I had recommended it. One of the police departments that I worked for that if, uh, we have like monthly meetings or had monthly meetings and can we get a financial advisor to come in and talk to the guys and men and women that are working, you know, Hey, like, does the city have any resources out there for people who may or may not have financial debt or stress and how we can handle that? So it's going to make a better police officer when you're on the street, because as we know, and I mean, I've gone to calls where my head has been other places because of different things that I had been dealing with at the time. And it has nothing to do with the person or people that I'm talking to. But had I had other resources that were provided to me, maybe the city could have get a better got a, could have gotten a better product out of me. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. It's I think that <clears throat> the the agencies need to invest better in their people. And half of that I put on the leadership because as a leader, I think if you were to say, hey, I mean, I look at mental health and mental health, nothing nothing more than going to like the brain mechanic and getting, you know, if your car's out of alignment, what do you do? You, you bring it to the mechanic, get it back in alignment. And it's the same relative thing with mental health. If you're stressed, if you're feeling off about something, all it is is just going out there and, and talking to somebody. They're not... <clears throat> For sake of argument, if you're my counselor, it's not you're not going to help me solve the problem. You're going to help me look at ways of solving the problem, and that's it's that's all what meant that's all, all what counseling is, um, in my eyes. And I think if leaders spoke up more about going to seek some sort of help, then the people that work for them would be more apt to go themselves in, instead of bottling it down or just ignoring the problem at whatever it is, whether it's a financial problem, a marital problem, work problem, you know, in some agencies I know have mandatory requirements. If for sake of argument, if you're a, a juvenile detective, sometimes you have to go twice a year to a counselor just to talk about the things that you've seen or helped deal with. But <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, I just look at it as if maybe if administration helped make their officer a better product and put more time and effort into them. Sometimes I think that not necessarily you, I understand you're <laughs> chief of police, but you know, that if, you know, they're just watching out for more uh, of their people, then they get a better officer. Well, one of the things too that I think, uh, uh, is going to be very helpful going forward. When I first came on, the job, John, was, as I mentioned, 1986. So leaders of police agencies of that time, right, many of them were uh, Vietnam-era mm-hmm. uh, individuals. So 
there wasn't much thought given, uh, if any at all, to issues of mental health in the workforce uh, as, as those folks were uh, growing up throughout their careers. And what we're starting to see now in the police world is uh, individuals that have grown up um, you know, in the, in the 90s, uh, in the 2000s, and uh, this is not foreign language. Right. To them. So uh, it's a whole different generation of leaders that are that are rising into uh, those jobs, whether they're chiefs of police or deputies or, or senior members of the department. Um, and I, I think it's really, really positive because they're aware of this, mm-hmm. you know, and they're aware of the importance of families and, uh, and keeping people healthy. So I think as time uh, continues to move along. We're going to see a, a, a much greater, and I've seen it already, a much greater emphasis uh, in this field than when I first started in the career. So I think that's really promising. Um, but the other thing, too, is uh, as, as young people are in this job now uh, and they start making uh, their first promotion to a, to a sergeant or in some agencies a corporal, depending upon what state or where they're from in the country, um, those first line supervisors' jobs are the most influential, and in my mind, the most important jobs in a police agency, because they're the ones day in and day out that are, as we used to say in the Coast Guard, providing the deck plate leadership to the people doing the king's business. Right. Yep. And so they can have a tremendous, powerful influence on the folks that work with them, good or bad. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hopefully in, in, in today's world, it's much more good uh, th- than bad. And, um, and they can do it by, by genuinely caring about the people they work with. Um, I used to have a sign in my, um, in my office um, – and well, I had a number of them actually, but but uh, one of my favorite sayings, and I didn't coin it, right? I a lot of my leadership style and 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 uh, and methods of doing business w- were things that I watched from from really great leaders. And, and well, that's that what, is, I think it's half of where you get leadership yeah. is just how you take the good and bad from everybody. Exactly. Uh, and the the sign said a. Uh, um, of course, now I'm having a senior moment. Um, <laughs> uh, but essentially, it's leadership is a commitment to each other's excellence. Okay. So, you know, if we're all on deck together and I'm doing the very best I can to make you the best that you can be in whatever particular part of the field that you're working in, and you do the same for me, think of what kind of a powerful workforce you could have. Yep. Yeah, I you know I agree. It's uh, I mean teamwork is really a commitment to each other's excellence. Yes, it is. My thought when it came to that that sort of style is I'm out there to make my sergeant or lieutenant, whoever's on duty that day, look good. Um I may or may not have always done that, but <laughs> that was my my goal is to make them look good, not <clears throat> and not cover for 
any perceived mistakes that they were making. It's just that kind of one hand watches the other hand sort of way. If if I'm going to be out there making him look good, then I, I'm going to put the trust in him that he's going to be doing the same for me when it came to either the higher leadership or the public in general. Um, but like you said, it's if yeah it's it's like it's it, it is teamwork it's complete teamwork if you know if you i have the confidence to go to you saying like hey i can't make it in on such and such a day i have to go to the counselor and then it's no you knowing that i'm doing this to make myself better for not only the job in my life but when it came to the job to put a better product for you and for you to help me out and by me helping myself it's going to automatically help that first line leader yeah. i had a uh, uh sergeant that i worked for um in truro actually i knew him when he was an officer in in, in provincetown as well and then a number of years after that he came to truro and he ended up being uh one of the first sergeants that i worked for and uh, his nickname was the turtle and uh, uh, where did he get that nickname? We, we called him the turtle because uh, he, he did everything very slowly and methodically. Okay. But he never missed a step or a trick. You know, he he um, he was tenacious in the way he went about his business, slowly, methodically, but he didn't miss, you know, a thing. However, um, the way I felt about working for him was I never, ever wanted to put uh, him in a position where uh, he had to reprimand me or he was upset with me or whatever else because I had too much respect for him, not only as a human being, but as a supervisor. And um, I knew that he was always there for me, but I... I, I did what I was supposed to do, and I worked hard, you know, um, and I didn't ever want to put him in a position where he was going to have to uh, call me into his office and, you know, read me the riot act or something like yeah. that. Um, but he was just a, a hardworking guy and and um, would always, always help you. And when I first made sergeant, it was the same kind of thing that I tried to do for, for my people was to make sure that if they ever needed me, I was there. I was willing to work hard, um, and you know, even as a even as a police chief, and it's kind of a funny thing, and I I'll never forget it. But um, um, one of the things I used to love to do because it kept me in touch with my community was I would do school crossings, mm -hmm. and I've been doing that since I was a a young patrol officer out on Route Six in Truro, and he's a, even as a police chief, and uh, especially when the weather was crappy. <laughs> <laughs> pouring rain or snow or whatever yeah. else. So I remember um, it was raining one day and I, I I would just get dressed in my, you know, rain gear, whatever, and go down and call off at school crossing and do school crossing. And uh, someone who's uh, a dear friend of mine and, and one of the, my, at the time, one of my sergeants, a fellow named Scott Hallway, would, uh, he'd come down, he'd roll down the window and he'd say, boss, I got it. And I'm like, no, I, I got it. I, I, <laughs> know how to do this and he'd look at me and he'd say god you're stubborn <laughs> and i'd say so are you <laughs> he'd roll the window up down the road he, he you know he'd go but um 
I thought about having Scott on the podcast as well, but I don't think I have the uh, what's that the bleep button as <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> but, uh, you know, but he, um, but we had you know that kind of relationship. But I you know I have a lot of respect for him and and uh, and he had for me. But you know my point with the whole thing was is number one it kept me in touch with my community. Yep. Um, uh, I'd see people out there that I knew and that kind of thing, and they. They knew that um, as a police chief, I was still taking care of them. Yeah, because that was my job. I had to take care of more people, you know, because I was now responsible for a whole community, um, as well as my workforce. But I cared deeply about those people, um, and it, uh, and about the workforce too. But I also was trying to uh, quietly teach them about leadership. Because leadership is not being able, uh, not being afraid to do what you're asking people to do, especially when it sucks. Yeah, when it's out in there in the rain and the you, snow. You know, because uh, sometimes it's miserable. Yeah, but um, that's part of the work, and you still need to be able to understand it. I don't, I don't think of it as diminishing the rank. Um, I just think of it as, um, as a, uh, as the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, s- simply. And it's, it's something as, as. Not to call it minimal, but as minimal as school crossing. I we used to do that at one of the PDs I worked with school every seven AM and then every two, two thirty in the afternoon. You let the the people going into the school and let them coming out of the school. And it was that rapport building, I think. People saw you out there doing work and they saw consistency, especially out of the police chief where you know, he's there every morning. They know he's at work and he's doing his job. And people don't like the chief that they don't know. If that makes any sense, the ones that they 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 can't they can't see. They want, especially in a small town like Truro. I worked in one of them as well, and <clears throat> it builds that rapport with the community. Yeah, and, and you know, it's not something that I would do every day. Um, for the most part, the officers did it. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, I was just part of their regular day shift routine. Yeah. But once in a while, you know, when I felt like it, I just would go down there and, and do it. Yeah. And um, it uh, it was healthy for me and it was healthy for the community. Uh, but, you know, sergeants, like I was just talking about a little bit before, you know, and, and uh, hopefully one of these days when, when you're promoted to that rank, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, you know, it's little things. Your, your, your guys uh, and gals are eating. Uh, in, you know, having their, their mid-shift break, having their meal, you know, you take the call. Yeah. If you're not doing anything, you take the call. Um, let them finish their meal. Yeah. You know, because someday you're going to be busy doing something and they're going to need to take. It all comes around. You know, so um, it's, like I said, it's not diminishing the rank. It's just, it's uh, it, it's teamwork. I always looked at it whereby, you know, with different ranks came additional responsibility and and people make the mistake of mixing up privilege and responsibility the privilege is in your pay the responsibility is in your rank mm-hmm. um and it it really makes it and i don't care whether you're in the service um you know when i retired from the service i was a command master chief i was an e9 um i was i was blessed to have uh been able to make the rank and do the work uh, as a CMC, but um, the perk was in my pay, and now the perk is in my retirement. Mm-hmm. But the job had a lot of responsibility, and you you damn well better do it. 
You know, I always said that uh, the the easiest person, the person that had it the easiest in the service was an E4 on the Mestec. Because <laughs> they had one boss, you know, a third-class petty officer or a seaman had one boss. And that was their third class and their second class. Yeah. That was their boss, you know. Um, you know, when uh, the admirals that I worked for, they had, like, the district admiral in Boston. Uh, I don't know how many people live in New England, but those are his bosses. Yeah. You know, the higher up in the food chain you got, uh, even as a police chief, you know, in town of Truro, the year-round population is 2,000, roughly. In the summer, on busy weekends, it's 30,000. So I figured I had 30,000 bosses. A lot of people answer to. You know, a patrolman answers to their sergeant, one person. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, we uh, call it the, uh, the E4 mafia in the Army. And, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like some of them get, like, those diamond encrusted like uh like ice skates they, they just skate out of everything and just not yeah. so <laughs> but, it, um, it, it's just perspective yeah that's all it's just a different perspective and uh you know you can either people can either make a choice they can do uh really good things in a position mm-hmm. um and be helpful uh to to those that uh surround them in their workplace or not mm-hmm. um and you don't always make the mark. That's the other thing. Yeah. Sometimes you don't quite uh, get to where you want to. You don't quite help as much as you want to. Or um, it, it, it's not always rosy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the best thing you can do is reflect on that. I used to ask my workforce, um, you know, give me 100% every day. Realize that you're not going to be able to. And on the days that you're not, when you come back in on the next day, realize that you didn't and say, you know what? Today's a fresh day mm-hmm. and I'm going to go at it fresh today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that way you, you, you get the best out of people. But you have to have some tolerance to understand that life gets in the way sometimes, right? Yep. And um, – uh, you're not running a dictatorship, you know. <laughs> Some people it's, try it, to. It's an organization. Yeah. Um, and uh, and true teamwork brings it all together. Uh, and you, sometimes you have to do your best to teach people how to be on a team. So when you were at the PD, what other uh, job titles did you hold? Obviously, you made it up to chief of police, but what other, I guess, responsibilities did you so, have? So um, when I was a patrol officer, um, uh, I did – uh, a lot of teaching. I was a firearms instructor. Okay. Uh, did that for a long time. Enjoyed that. And um, and then uh, I I even used to teach uh, babysitting classes. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. To Girl Scouts and, you know, and other things. And then um, a little bit later on, uh, I did some, some fleet maintenance work. And then um, when I became a sergeant, uh, I did that. The fleet maintenance stuff was still teaching firearms, and I was teaching it not only at my PD, but also on a, a regional training team for uh, for Cape Cod uh, Law Enforcement's Council. Yep. So I did that for a while. Then I, when I went on active duty and came back, um, I did the job of the department's uh, court liaison prosecutor Fun. for a year, uh, slant bar detective. And uh, being frank... I sucked at that job. <laughs> the prosecutor job? Yeah, and a detective. Yeah. Um, it takes a special 
person to do that type of work, yeah. and that was not me. Um, I was really good at going to an accident scene that could have been absolute chaos, and I could get it squared away in short order. Um, I think my strength was on the road. Um, it was not being an investigator, so after a year, uh, I asked to go back uh, in patrol. It does take a special um, person, a prosecutor of that person. Um, I'm not calling out my uh, prosecutor, who I'm good friends with, or a former prosecutor now, but you have to be kind of organized uh, to do that job. And for a detective, patience is key when it comes to that, I think. It's having that patience to not to see the, the case through to the end, and it may not get solved in a shift. And you have to keep uh, be willing to keep going at it. And, yeah, there's and, a lot to it. Yeah. And uh, I just wasn't the guy for that job. And I knew it, you know. So are you you're better off staying in a job that you don't like and, and uh, the department is not being well served or get out of it, you know. So mm -hmm. my choice was to get out of it <laughs> uh, and, and go back to patrol. So that's what I did. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I made lieutenant um, – and I did that job for uh, after our, our our longstanding chief retired, um, and then uh, our lieutenant bumped up to uh, uh, acting chief for a while, and then uh, um, I bumped up to lieutenant, and then eventually to chief, uh, and then my last oh well, six years I was their police chief. Okay, uh, and I was honored to do the job. Um, you know, I loved the contact with the community and and. Uh, I kind of I viewed it as being the gatekeeper uh, to a certain extent. You know, I I'd, I'd hold I'd hold things at bay from the outside. <laughs> kind of look over my shoulder and say, "You guys go do the good work we're asking you to do." And I and I viewed my job as the person to provide them the resources they needed to do the good things that we were asking them to do. Whether it was um, leadership, whether it was uh, uh, policies and material things, whether it was taking care of the infrastructure of where they were working, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, we had a, a police station that was not protected from lightning. And yeah. it had been that way since the building was built over 20 years. We had literally had people in the dispatch center that had been struck by lightning. Jeez. Uh, yep. And, uh, <laughs> what, does it just come right through the radio? Uh, it did. One of our dispatchers wow. was struck by a bolt of lightning through uh, through the tower, through the cables, into the building, into her. Uh, wow. Thank God she was not uh, seriously hurt. Um, but the building was not protected. So one of the, the first major hurdles I had to do was to get uh, um, get the town working on a program to get the engineering work done, uh, to get the building um, uh, surveyed and analyzed. Did and you then, view yourself more as a politician than a police officer at that point in time? Because um, that's kind of how I <clears throat> view most chiefs, that they have – they're answering obviously to like the board of selectmen or, you know, the town manager, whoever it is. And they have more of like a politician's role. They may be appointed or get promoted to chief of police, but that's kind of how I have seen some chiefs. Yeah, I – um I didn't really view it as being a politician. Uh, I, I viewed it as conductor of the orchestra. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's how I would describe it. In yeah. fact, I would describe my job uh, to the board. You know, uh, I, I see, would tell them all the time in public meetings when I would give quarterly reports or whatever mm -hmm. that I was just the conductor of the orchestra. 
um, and the orchestra was all the, the members, uh, the civilian as well as the sworn officers of the department. They were the ones out doing the king's business every day, doing the good work we were, as a community that we were asking them to do. You know, I was just the guy providing the resources for them um, to do the things that we were asking them uh, to do. Uh, it's an involved job. You know, there's all kinds of tentacles that, that go yeah. out, um, you know, uh, and, and I honestly, my work in the military is what uh, helped me be able to do the job as a chief of police. Because okay. prior to that, in the police world, I didn't have uh, the leader, direct leadership development programs to help me into that job. But the military did, uh, interestingly enough. There was no, like, uh, so I know Roger Williams actually has, like, the first-line leader courses now. And, I did that, but yeah. that's more as a, for, a, for a supervisor, yeah. for a line supervisor, not for a senior executive. Okay. Um, and if you're not a senior executive, you're not – going to be going to those courses that senior executives can go to yeah. you know so it, it, it's kind of a catch-22 um so i was fortunate to have the military uh not only formal schooling but practical application of that schooling to bring with me when i did the job um our our community for many many years had all kinds of roads um that the uh, the road safety, the speed limits, um, all kinds of the, the actual adoption of regulations for uh, traffic patterns, speed limits, all that kind of stuff were never done properly. So uh, we embarked on a two-and-a-half-year effort with the state to get many of the roads in the town, the secondary roads, the speed limits lowered, um, and uh, road designs implemented gotcha. that would, would help public safety. But that's not something when you're a sergeant that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, the, that you're, you're thinking that the police chief does. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, what's the police chief doing? Well, he works on the budget and he buys police cars. And, you know, goes to meetings. That's, I don't know what else. That's, that's the whole above my pay grade thing that I was trying to talk about earlier. Yeah. You know, but that was two and a half years worth of work. Yeah. You know, and two huge binders worth of material, you yeah. know, and tons of meetings and stuff. So, you know, there's all that kind of stuff going on in the background. But what you're doing is is you're, you're working on programs to help make the community um, uh, a, a safe and a, uh, a great place to live. But it's, it, it's things that are related to quality of life and public service that, that are tied yeah. to, to policing and public service. Now, when did you get your <clears> – or when did the thought of becoming a pilot, other than being, when you were little – yeah, uh, come into your head. When I was little. Yeah. <laughs> Did you start working on that? Well, when, I, when I was little, you know, uh, reading every single book I could, you know, starting in the third grade when, when my mother signed me up for the military book club. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think I was around 28, 29, 30 years old and had been talking about it with my wife uh, at the time. And, and she said, well, why don't you just go take lessons? So uh, 96, 1996 is when I started. And uh, started in January that year and got licensed in December. The only difficult thing for me was um, I really wanted to take my dad flying, and he passed away about a month or so before I got oh, my license. That. So I wasn't able to wasn't able to take him. And my mom had had uh, 
uh, passed away about four or five years before that. So I was never able to, to uh, take my parents flying what I would have loved to have done. Yeah. You know, um, hopefully they're watching, uh, watching from above and enjoying my flying (laughs) adventures as well, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was, you know, around 20, like I said, between 20 and 30, somewhere in that range. Okay. um, When I learned to fly. So, yeah, it's about 30 years ago. Did you have to, or did you have a thought that that was going to be like your retirement gig? Not at all. No. Nope. Um, I, I, uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do in retirement until, you know, much later on. And so now, you know, working as an aircraft mechanic and as a pilot flying biplanes and, and uh, you know, the vintage aircraft, it's completely different from public service, <laughs> although... In one respect, uh, it's still honoring the military and, and sharing it with the public. Right. So, um, you know, that's a that's a fun aspect of that part of my flying. The other part is just people smiling. And I tell people the big difference between doing this and my uh, career is that when people come to the airport, usually they're smiling. And when they leave the airport, they have a bigger smile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, That's for sure. Not many people smile at the uh, You know, the they don't officers. call police officers because they're having their best <laughs> yeah, day. And exactly. they usually don't have a much bigger smile when they leave, you know. So yeah. it's just a bit of a contrast. It, it's um, it's funny because I had been talking with another uh, former police officer out of New Jersey who hasn't been on the uh, podcast yet. But <clears throat> law enforcement doesn't do much at all. To help the police, the cops, when they're on their way out the door to set them up with another gig. You know, the military has started to. Um, obviously, I don't know how you got your pilot's license, but you can try to go through the VA to get your uh, the, the licenses and set them up with further, further education. But and all that sort of stuff. But the law enforcement, public service aspect of it, it's kind of, well, you're done on Friday. Here you go. You're out the door and figure it out and uh some people will either do really well or really bad when it comes to that retirement in my eyes should just be it's just a, it's a negative word you never really retired you should be out there kind of always progressing and learning new things but and it looks like you have that same sort of same sort of thought as well but uh but yeah i don't think i think law enforcement first responder agencies can and should do a little bit more when it comes to helping their people leave the job as well but yeah they don't really there's nothing uh certainly there's nothing formalized in the military like in our service we have a tap uh, they call it a tap program to a transition assistance program it's a one-week course which uh, everyone who's retiring uh uh has the option to go to on orders you know um to the class and it's everything about uh uh you know helping people with the resume development to uh, talking with folks about how you're going to feel when you no longer have the responsibilities you have, no longer have the teamwork, you know, all those kinds of things and what the what the mental aspects of that yeah. is. So it's a, you know, it's a wonderful program, but uh, we are missing that in policing. And I always encourage people to uh, not only have a circle of friends outside of the, the police work, but also uh, interests and hobbies outside so that when you – when you do finish up, whether you do a full career and retire or just finish up in general, that there's something else in your life that gives you um, satisfaction and, uh, you know, uh, so that you're, you're not left empty. Yeah. Yep. I, f- I kind of felt that when I left. It was 
<clears throat> granted, I left on my own accord and occasion and moved completely from the area, but it was trying to define, trying to find a new group of friends in this area that <clears throat> I didn't really want to look in the rearview mirror when it come when it came to my job. People are interested in police officers and they're always going to ask questions and ask opinions and whatnot. But I <clears throat> didn't want and don't want to surround myself with just cops as friends. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, and want to maintain a circle of friends that are outside of that job. Just like you were saying that they have different hobbies, different, uh, vocations and you can, you know, when the time comes and you're not in that career field anymore, you can learn something new. I don't know. It's just kind of the way I had always looked at it. But like you said, it's, yeah, it was definitely a, a transition for me. <laughs> I'm not sure how it was for you, but I can speak from my own, my, my own accord. It was definitely a little more difficult than I had uh, thought it was going to be. Well, I was fortunate. I had, uh, along the way, I've developed a, a pretty good circle of friends. It's not huge, um, but the you know the the friends that I do have uh, any um, are real, and they um, uh, they've always been there. And and uh, not having uh, some friends involved in police work always gives you a a breath of uh, fresh air. Yeah, you know, so that when you get together and have dinner or share a coffee or whatever the case you're may be. You're not talking about work. You're not talking about shop. Yeah. You know, it's 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 something else, whether it's your kids, your families, your hobbies, or whatever else. It gives you that uh, breath of fresh air. Yeah. And a breather, which yeah. I think is important as folks go through their careers. Yeah. You know? I've been there and talking, you know, at the going out and getting dinner and a drink or whatever, and I've literally said, can we just not talk about work for 10 minutes? Yeah. You know, <laughs> just kind of step away from it. But, uh, but yeah, they've... I I know um, <clears throat> there were a couple big cases while you were in Truro, uh, the Krista Worthington cases or case, excuse me, um, and obviously Lady of the Dunes wasn't in Truro, but um, in the neighboring P town. But uh, is there anything else that comes to mind while you're working there? Well, um, you know, it's uh, they they all uh, days sort of run into the other. And um, like the Crystal Worthington murder, I was not involved in that case, even though I was working there at the time. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't, uh, wasn't on duty that night. And um, I didn't really have a part in, uh, in the follow-up work that was done, you know, for the weeks, uh, the weeks afterwards. And, uh, you know, I think not having uh, massive monumental cases that you reflect on is probably a good thing, yeah. you know. There were uh, you know, certainly lots of, of of little ones along the way, uh, comparatively in the scope. So um, you know, I just kind of look at the whole career as a you know a lifelong um, opportunity to to just be be there for a community and help them. Whether you know you were shoveling their driveway uh, or their walkway, rather, or getting somebody home in a storm. Um, you know, going to medical calls or, uh, you know, and, and certainly you, you know, even when I worked in Provincetown early on as a, as a special in summertime, <laughs> there were always plenty of fights to go to. <laughs> Lee's told me know, a few. <laughs> uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But uh, that's, you know, those are things that are over in, yeah. in, in a, a, a short bit of time. And then uh, there's a little bit of paperwork uh, afterwards. But um you know, you just hope that during your time on deck, so to speak, 
um, that uh, you did some good while you were there. Um, and if uh, if you did, and if you think you did, well, then uh, that's plenty. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. You know? Would you uh, have any advice for people wanting to get into the job now? Well, um, either there or the military in the Coast Guard. Um, a life of public service can be, uh, you know, a, a great one. There are certainly risks um, to it. It's not. Uh, it's not like you're sitting behind a pencil on a paper all day long. Much different career than that. Uh, Being in this office, I can understand why people go insane. Yeah. <laughs> no windows. <laughs> no, no windows. Square cubicle with no windows. <laughs> yeah, my no eyes windows. are going. I'm going blind at the computer. So yeah, but. Uh, uh, I still think that uh, you know either one, whether it's the military or policing, uh, is a is a great career. Uh, but the best I, advice that I could give someone is to uh, to make sure that they take some personal time for themselves um, along the way, no matter what they do. Uh, just be proud of it and uh, thankful for the opportunity to serve. Um, because we all should be honored for that. Uh, not, a, not everybody gets to do it. And, um, and just make sure that along the way they take time for themselves and absolutely take time for their families yeah. um, and do the best they can. It's not easy, um, but it's a no either one, whether you're in the military or a firefighter or a police officer, they're noble professions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you have the opportunity to do some good along the way or not. Um, so choose the right path. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if, if people are coming up to the Cape on vacation and, uh, they want to go for a ride, where can they, uh, so, flight? Yeah. So if they, <laughs> if they, uh, if they come to Chatham and, uh, visit us at, uh, stick and rudder arrow, uh, at the Chatham municipal airport, we're there and, uh, we're, we fly actually 12 months out of the year. Okay. The biplane, which I fly, um, we, we fly from about May till, uh, the beginning of November. Okay. And then it starts getting too cold. And yeah. We, we put it away. <laughs> but we fly the air, the other airplanes uh, year-round. And there's a wonderful restaurant there, Hangar B. <laughs> the food is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and uh, we'd love to have folks come by and yeah. and go for a ride with us. Yeah. It's really a – to see the Cape three-dimensionally, oh, my God. The, uh, the, the tidal flats and the colors in the water. I always tell people, pick low tide. Don't go at high tide. Don't go at the end of the day because the colors are all washed out. But uh, to be able to see uh, the lakes, the ponds, the beaches, the marine life is absolutely spectacular. Um, and like I said, the tidal flats, the shellfish grants, there's so much to see out here. Yeah. Really, really extraordinary. You know? Yeah. I've tried taking uh, – well, actually, when uh, when I bought a uh, gift certificate for Kayla's birthday a couple of years ago, it was – March, the beginning of COVID, and I think everything right after that. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. 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 I shut it down. So we, I want to get up there and, and do a tour. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. Bring her in the biplane. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you guys do any you flips no, or anything we, like that? We, we, we don't. We keep the, uh, the dirty side down, as they say, and, okay. uh, because we don't want people to have a bad ride yeah. and uh, get their stomachs upset because uh, it's no fun for them, and we have to clean it up afterwards. <laughs> you know? um, so I, I promise everyone that I fly very gently because I want them to have a terrific time. Um, but, uh, yeah, they can visit us, like I said, at Stick and Rudder Arrow. Um, they can look on uh, TripAdvisor. Okay. And uh, – just type in stick and rudder arrow tours and they can see uh, photographs and that kind of stuff of what we do. And, uh, yeah, we'd welcome them to come by. We'd love to take them. Yeah. Is there any, uh, 
closing thoughts or messages you'd, you'd, you'd want to put out there? Not in particular. No. I mean, we chatted about a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. With the military policing <laughs> today. Um, but uh, I certainly enjoyed it. John, thanks for- uh, No, thank you. Thank you for the invite and having yeah. me down. No, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, like I said, it's been a while since we've- uh, yeah, since so I first over a year, out. I think. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. I've <laughs> yeah. been at it trying and, to get it going. And I tried doing a few at home without like a certain area to do it, and it was just not working out. Yeah. And then uh, she surprised me with, with being able to, to do this. And no, this is awesome. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I love getting out there and meeting new people. I think it's – the podcast is <clears> – <throat> for me, it's definitely – it's 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 cathartic. I get to talk to new people that I would have never met or talked to before. <clears throat> I've taught, you know, I've interviewed retired SEAL, uh, guys that have had, um, you know, mental health issues, men and women from Florida. And and it's, it's fun. I, it's a lot of work, as you can see by the wires and everything here. Making it all happen. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but, um, it's fun work. And, you know, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it, and I thoroughly appreciate you coming out to, oh, to do sure. this. Oh, sure. Well, so. good luck, and good luck to both you and Kayla and the little ones. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope uh, things continue to go well for you guys and, Thank in you. your careers and uh, and uh, with each other, certainly. And Yeah. Yeah, just make sure you take that time that you're talking about, <laughs> yeah. you know. She gave me this time. I, I don't know why I decided to push the button and start a business as soon as I have a, uh, a little one at home, but I did, and... <laughs> well, uh, we'll see where it goes. So, yeah. so how does it work from here? What, uh, uh, so, what, what's next for the podcast? So basically, I I do this all on my own. There's a um, there's a free app, essentially for pre program called Audacity. Excuse me. That I uh, um, I upload all of the sound into um, on the computer. I edit it, and then there's an RSS feed, and I don't know what that actually stands for, but basically, in layman's terms, because I'm speaking at the lowest level, which is me, there's a middleman between this and however you listen to, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. So there's the middleman, which provides an RSS feed, and I upload the audio once I'm done editing it, editing it to that feed, which distributes distributes it to the different platforms oh wow so and um obviously we're we don't have any video cameras set up or anything like that eventually i want to get to that point where the podcast does well enough where you know people want to actually see the conversation in person so um i think the long i think more people get i think they like the long format better than they do the short segments and i like i like hearing people where they come from and what made them want to join either the military or you know law enforcement or both and i just like hearing the conversation and i and i and i like that conversation so um i really i'd rather not have like a 20 30 minute podcast i'd like to have the the long form combo and i think people enjoy that more great well good luck oh yeah. thank you very much it continues to to blossom for you <laughs> thank you very much yes thank you all right take care